नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चारवक पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा ऑल राइट सो टुडे वी आर गोइंग टू बी कवरिंग वंस अगेन द कंप्लीट लिंग्विस्टिक केस फॉर द आउट ऑफ इंडिया थ्योरी टुडे इज गोइंग टू बी पार्ट थ्री ऑफ दिस सीरीज इफ यू हैव नॉट सीन पार्ट वन एंड पार्ट टू आई वुड request each and every one of you please go and visit those two also so the format is very simple as always we are going to be continuing with the presentation which is going to be popping up in us on your screen just now you can go through the presentation and if you have any questions uh, that you want to ask for uh, you know to shrikant ji you can use the super chat option or the upi option and send the question across to me and i will ask them later on to shrikant sir and it doesn't have to be about today's presentation you can even ask any questions from part 1 or part 2 so now i'll bring the presentation up and sir you can begin uh, from where we had left off last time yeah now the favorite argument of uh, ait proponents is a substrate argument you know there have been tomes and tomes written on this for example uh, on this uh, screen you will see in this slide i have given the names of just five of the articles by michael witzel dealing only with this topic they they try to show you know that the vedic people were outsiders they came here and the local people were actually non indo european speaking that is mainly dravidian and uh, or in the case of witzel he denies dravidian and he says they were munda so he differs from all the other uh, western ait proponents in that he rejects dravidian and he accepts munda so that first point is good for us the second is what we will uh, have to deal with now uh, what they want to say is that because these people came from outside like you know when the britishers came to india they adopted so many words from us like bungalow and uh, other such things and uh, if you read books of that time written in england they use all kinds of uh, indian words like chota hazri and uh, things like that you know which even we don't use actually but they probably used in the colonial circles in india at that time so uh, what happens is that people who come from outside usually borrow local words and the people of the uh, local this uh, uh, speaker uh, speakers of the local languages borrow the words of the people who come from outside it's a two way process now what these people are claiming is that the rigvedic people were actually staying in the northwestern area of india and that area was originally occupied by non indo european language speakers that is either dravidian or anything else they even in, in, invent a language x which has left no trace anywhere witzel invents it and many other people uh, of the other linguists also when they cannot derive a word from dravidian or uh, munda they claim that it is some unknown language which was living there which has left no record at so at all except in the rigveda in these borrowed words sir i have a question when they say things like unknown language do they literally say we don't know like do they say it is proto dravidian or proto indo european or anything of that sort no no because uh, michael witzel in fact he claims that uh, in the two parts of the harappan civilization uh, one was kolmunda and another was uh, language x now by language x he means a language which is not known which is not recorded anywhere which does not belong to any of the known uh, language families it has left no trace at all but in the rigveda we find certain words which he claims are not indo european words so they can only be words borrowed from the local people once you assume that uh, local people were different from the vedic people this becomes very easy to assume now uh, this has become a very regular industry searching out all these words 
and uh, as i said here are the articles you can you all can go through the articles and you all will see how michael witzel practically goes berserk there is no other phrase for it everything he finds he finds not only single words but even classes of words words beginning with something words ending with something and he claims all of them are non indo european he can usually give no actual uh, examples so sometimes he tries to find some words in the munda languages which have begin with the same beginning for example i'll deal with that in a minute now so uh, this is the thing now what according to them does it prove it proves that the local people from whom the rigvedic people borrowed these words were not indo european speaking they were something else next uh next now in these papers witzel insists on the existence of a paramunda language you see witzel actually denies that dravidian was spoken there he says as i do that dravidian appears only in the later parts of the text when there was more contact with the south and uh, he says that right from the earliest parts you find paramunda language words now paramunda is he cannot directly say there munda because they are not there in the munda language or as there are uh, there are different words so he invents a paramunda language related to the munda languages like santali uh, mundari etc that is the austric languages which are spoken in orissa and uh, bengal and uh, jharkhand and part eastern parts of chatisgarh so you see they have spoken in eastern india they are not found anywhere to the west now the funny thing is that what he claims goes against the conclusions of all the munda experts you see all the linguists who are experts in the munda language they firmly say that there were no munda languages spoken in the northwest or even in north say even not even as far as rajasthan or gujarat they are all found in the east but he simply goes berserk saying no no the veda uh, although there is no record of munda languages in the northwest and no, uh, west the rigvedic vocabulary proves that they were there and then he goes berserk as i said sweeping large chunks of vedic vocabulary into the paramunda basket now uh, the kind of logic that these people have is actually you know presumptuous to the highest degree and special pleading what is called special pleading they say no no please believe us please believe us we are the experts and we are telling you so what he has done is uh, there are articles by him in which he quotes so many words in the rigveda which he claims are from the bmac substrate another unknown language it does not belong to any known family but he claimed that this language was spoken in central asia that is before the rigvedic people came to india so these uh, words are common to both the rigveda and uh, both the vedic language as well as the iranian languages so it is not in india because they refused to accept that iranian languages were ever spoken in india so what he claims is that it is in central asia that these certain words entered the vedic and iranian languages now uh, in one of his articles he actually gives a list of these words which i think uh, it is in the next slide anyway uh, here he gives these bmac substrate words and all these words are found only in the new rigveda or many of them are not even found in the rigveda they are found in post rigvedic texts so how does it prove that they are pre rigvedic words it is that circular reasoning you know that uh, if it is found in iranian it must be pre rigvedic now i have dealt with that subject in detail when i uh, was analyzing the uh, vedic mitanni and avestan vocabulary 
and uh, i have shown the difference between the vocabulary of the old rigveda and the new rigveda so iranian and mitanni vocabulary is found only in the new rigveda it is not found in the old rigveda now um uh, no that previous thing i think is not over previous slide now um uh, yes another thing is that they use the word substrate for adstrate you know there is a difference between substrate and adstrate adstrate means just any word which you borrow in from another language whereas substrate yes. has special meaning that if someone comes and stays in a land suppose we go and stay in the andaman islands and then we borrow some andamanese words into our speech then those are the local words which we as outsiders are borrowing into our speech so that is a uh, those are substrate words so they use that word substrate for adstrate means any word which they claim is non indo european they claim it is substrate automatically means they assume that the original speakers of that area were speaking that language and the vedic speakers came from outside now i have dealt with this in uh, great detail in my uh, books uh, that i have uh, given the references here uh, now next now um, now see i have shown that the mitanni uh, data i have spoken of this on my in my other uh, talks so i will not go into detail in this in my talks books and blogs now this proves that the new rigveda books go back to at least 2500 bce and uh, the older books the old rigveda goes back even beyond 3000 bce now in this period beyond 3000 bce there are no memories of external lands there are no non aryan enemies even in that period according to their theory the indo uh, aryans entered india after 2000 bc and then they took over the land from the non aryans but even in 3000 bc which is the actual date of the old books you find no reference to non aryan enemies the enemies are also it is like you know if you take the mahabharata and then you try to show that uh, mm -hmm. the pandavas were aryans and the kauravas were uh, non aryans you can't because they all have aryan names so here also in the rigveda all the enemies practically have same similar names they, i mean indo aryan names and certainly not dravidian and uh, austric names so and uh, even the names of the local animals animals and rivers are indo aryan names now witzel tries to show that some of the river names are non aryan but now blajek in his paper hydronomia rigvedika he has gone into detail in the names of the 29 river names that he has given of these for 22 there are only purely indo aryan names that he gives and for the remaining seven he gives indo aryan as well as suggested non indo aryan alternative names so how can you claim that they are all because seeing that 22 names are purely indo aryan obviously for the rest, rest of the seven also it is much more likely statistically that the indo aryan etymologies which have been suggested are correct yeah sir i have a question here so when michael witzel makes the case that these names or certain names that appear are dravidian so what is the linguistic analysis and uh, proof that they provide to show that grammatically these happen to be dravidian names like what is the process that they go behind and yeah. they show okay this is the root and this root is a dravidian root do they do something of that sort no uh, see uh, he doesn't claim dravidian as i said he claimed munda now what he says is for example ganga no, I, i'm sorry i meant munda i meant munda yeah. i sorry i he misspoke i'm ganga 
he says that all the uh, eastern uh, east india and even further right up to china he says for example the yangtze kyang kyang and so you have this kyang and uh, gang and other such things in irious name so he says that the ganga is actually a munda name which has been made although everyone has accepted till now that it comes it is derived from the sanskrit root for go move you know the moving river which as it flows now that is the uh, indo aryan etymology but just by finding similar names this is actually quite a pn okish procedure but that's what he does <laughs> he, he tries to show that uh, by showing similar names that uh, they, they are they are munda names now actually blazek now in this where he gives uh, seven alternate names two or three of them are even burushaski names now even burushaski is is located in that area so it could well be that the names are burushaski or indo aryan that makes no difference and it is only the munda names which are very dubious because all munda scholars accept that munda languages were never spoken in that area but what what actually vizel is showing by claiming that those words are in munda because see when we compare this with the mitanni data it is absolutely proved on the basis of recorded data recorded and dated by carbon dating the mitanni texts are dated by carbon dating all the uh, documents and inscriptions of the mitanni people or pertaining to them they are all carbon dated so we know that they are from 1500 bc and before and we when we examine it in comparison with the rigveda we see that all those uh, indo aryan elements in the mitanni language are found only in the new rigveda so that automatically takes the old rigveda far far beyond that in the past and even in that old rigveda you don't find uh, any uh, references to invasions or fights with non aryans or anything and even the rivers have indo aryan names so when uh, vidzel searches for words ordinary word not necessary this words you know like to having to do with agriculture or all that and he tries to show their munda words now what in effect he is showing because see he cannot disprove the date of the rigveda going back to 3000 bc but by trying to find so many masses of munda words in the this thing which are not local words they are spoken in the east of india what is actually showing is that even in 3000 bc the indo aryan presence was so old that already the rigveda has masses of munda words from the far eastern interior of india and next uh, sheet you'll see even something even funnier uh, next uh, slide now he strives hard to show he claims in his book that all words beginning with ki ku etc are of paramunda origin now you know the Mita only mitanni name that we know for certain of a writer is kikuli he is the writer who has written that treatise on horse racing in west asia which is uh, has all these all these horse racing words which are uh, discussed in mitanni discussions the writer of that is kikuli now he also has a name beginning with ki which according to vidzel is a paramunda name so that again proves that he went from an area where munda languages were spoken or where munda language influence was there now if vidzel claims that munda influence although they are spoken only in eastern india their influence had already reached the rigvedic area by 3000 bc and so strongly that these mitanni people who went from there even their names had these munda elements in them 
so all this in fact strengthens the out of india theory so while we can discuss whether those are uh, actually munda elements or not they don't actually disprove the out of india theory and they don't actually prove the out aryan invasion theory they in fact actually strengthen our case for the out of india theory because even in 3000 bce the rigveda had these apparently paramunda words and this paramunda name was actually taken out from india by the ancestors of the mitanni people right up to west asia and the most famous book written by the mitanni uh, which gives us the clues for the mitanni words is by a writer who has this paramunda name according to witzel now all this only confirms the out of india theory not the ait i don't know if uh, I, my point is clear or you have some no, question it, so i i get it so i just wanted to uh, make a slight uh, you know maybe we should uh, take a break and discuss this point a lot of the dis- difference of opinion that seems to be uh, i don't know what to say maybe between you and your world view and the aryan migration or the aryan invasion whichever terminology people want to call it by seems to be that the entire case over there is based on the assumption that the rigveda is not older than 1500 bce and if the rigveda is 1500 bce all of this makes sense yeah. Yeah. but could you then then in that case how does one approach a group intellectually would be my question to you that they're like no it is 1500 bc and if somebody says how is it 1500 bc there seems to be no answer really academically given it's just theek hai wo 1500 bc hai but why because a certain dna enters in india at that time because that dna enters india at that time that strand has to be the same people that got the rigveda why well because in the eurasian steps we see these kinds of habits followed by these people also we see these common mythologies being uh, practiced by all these people also because these common mythologies are practiced by all these people and these people have come from point a to point b they are the ones who wrote the rigveda seems to be the case of you know the people who present the aryan migration theory now the case obviously where you present the cases you deny the 1500 bce date but then how does one pass this kind of an impasse is what my yeah. my no, point is it's very simple because you see so far as the discussion remains one sided they refuse to examine the evidence of the mitanni and the avesta vocabulary in comparison with the rigveda and this case for the old rigveda versus new rigveda which i have given it is not seem not based on one word if you see that article you will see the huge mass of words which covers the whole rigveda which all points in one direction now if these people are going to argue by completely ignoring the data as you yourself i think once pointed out when you examine these words uh, books by people like that horse and chariot books and all they completely ignore the data in the rigveda so that is the way they go but then they still tell us that the rigveda was composed by the uh, indoarians when they entered india and they refuse to accept any discussion or to conduct any that, discussion sir, not only that they say the rigveda was composed by the indo aryans after entering india some say no it was composed outside india but then that becomes too inconvenient for them because some of the stories in the rigveda and the biggest uh, thing is the elephant ibha right yeah. if 
इफ इट इज कम्पोज आउटसाइड इंडिया तो एलिफेंट कहां से आ गया दैट इज टू इनकनवीनियंट फॉर देम बट देन दे मेक द क्लेम दैट इट कम्स इन इंडिया एंड इन थ्री हंड्रेड फोर हंड्रेड ईयर रिग्वेदा इज क्रिएटेड एंड दोकेबुलरी ह्यूज डिफरेंस बिटवीन दोकेबुलरी ऑफ द ओल्ड रिग्वेदा एंड द रिग्वेदा हैज चेंज इन थ्री हंड्रेड ईयर्स दैट इज द मोर शॉकिंग बिट फॉर मी no and but when you compare it with the mitanni then you realize it couldn't have happened at that time it has to have happened before 2500 bc you so after 2500 bc only that new rigvedic vocabulary came into being which is found in the mitanni so so long as they refuse to discuss this and so long as our own indian writers who are against the ait as long as they continue to go into dream worlds of mythological stories and refuse to you know Please present this as the data. They should say, please prove this wrong. Prove this wrong. This comparison of the Mitanni Avestan vocabulary with the data with the Rigvedic data, and this is the most solid piece of evidence based on carbon dating in West Asia. And if there no one asks them to answer this, and you keep on raising silly points, then they are going to win the debate, which is what is happening. Not win the debate means at least they are going to hold on to their own in the positions of power and whatever is being taught. now uh, as i said since it is actually going back to 3000 bc which they are refusing to examine and disprove what i have shown that the rigveda goes back to 3000 bc they should examine and disprove it but they are not doing it so we can't force them to do it but we can now accept that they are not going to do it and we can go on ahead of that now if this is so what are the main arguments they can make to show that substrate words prove the ait or disprove the oit so there are two main arguments the first one is of course that the migrating branches did not take indian features like cerebral sounds and dravidian munda words now i have already discussed this in the earlier part of this talk i think in the first or second uh, part the gypsy or romani language which is an indo aryan language from the interior of north india who is supposed who are supposed to have migrated just 1000 years ago even they do not have cerebral sounds and dravidian munda words and no one denies that they went out from india just 1000 years ago so the 11 non indo aryan branches migrated from north western india to the west of the vedic area 5000 to 4000 years ago so if they also do not have cerebral sounds and dravidian munda words what does it prove does it prove that the gypsy romani language also did not go from india so you see everything like whether it is the ural uh, uh, uralic languages having indo iranian words or the word for wine all the examples that i have given when you examine them it actually proves the oit not the ait and yet they keep on asserting that it proves the ait and because they have the control of the media no one dares to control the uh, to challenge their uh, illogical stand so this actually as i said the very existence of the romani language disproves this argument second is that indo aryan languages have borrowed non indo aryan names for indian animals and plants because they did not have indo aryan names for them now you know when europeans went to australia they borrowed the word for kangaroo from the australians similarly when they went to uh, say uh, america the the names for various things like the i think the skunk or the um, uh, wapiti the one species of deer all these words are borrowed from the local uh, american indian languages so they claim that 
Rigveda also has borrowed words for Indian uh, animals from Dravidian and Munda. Now, I think the very example of the word for elephant, it completely demolishes the case. But anyway, let us see what uh, other data is there in the Rigveda. Uh, next. Huh. Now, you see in the Rigveda, I have given this full list of words. I won't read it. People can see it at their leisure. See, all these things which are very, very much Indian, like uh, elephant, the Indian bison, the peacock, the buffalo, the chital, the Ganget gangetic or river dolphin, the hyena, they are not found anywhere in Central Asia or uh, Europe or the steppes. They are all found in India or sometimes in Africa or Southeast Asia, most of them. So all of them have purely Indo-European names in the Rigveda itself, Indo-Aryan names. If sometimes some of these, for example, people try to, for example, Shalmali. They, I have seen people claiming that this is a borrowed Munda word. Now, I don't know by what logic. But once these people firmly assert it, like for the BMAC words, they assert that those words belong to some unknown language from Central Asia, which is not recorded anywhere. And actually, those words are found in the later parts of the Rigveda or in post-Rigvedic texts. So still they claim they are pre-Rigvedic words borrowed in Central Asia before the Vedic people entered India. So you see, what they are saying is totally false. The only thing is they have control of certain positions and they have a huge fan following who, which just blindly accepts whatever they are saying. And unfortunately, we don't have an opposing side. We have a divided side which is concerned with complete non-issues. They are not concerned with these basic points. So that is the problem. Uh, see the uh, yeah now you see in Yajurveda and Atharva Veda again you find purely uh, some more names appear now why don't they appear in the Rigveda for the simple reason that in context they have not uh, appeared there but some contexts arise in the Yajurveda and Atharva Veda which moreover are deeper inside India and see what are the uh, words like uh, tiger leopard rhinoceros python crocodile chameleon mongoose hedgehog porcupine and uh, sugarcane, then uh, the uh, banyan tree, the shami tree, the white fig tree, the long pepper, all these are uh, a spice. And in the Atharvaveda, there are countless other Indian medicinal plants, countless, which I have not given here. All of them have Indo-Aryan names and they are Indian plants. At the same time, it may be noted that the Dravidian languages of the South now, you know, even the Western linguists accept, including Witzel and Hawk and uh, others, that the no Dravidian languages found in the North actually migrated from the South a thousand years ago or so. So actually there is no evidence for Dravidian languages in the North. But still these people claim that Dravidian languages are spoken there. If so, then why did Dravidian language borrow words? Have, why have Dravidian languages borrowed words from Indo-Aryan languages? For the lion, the camel, and the khadga. In Kannada and Telugu, for example, khadga mruga means uh, rhinoceros. Unta, ushta, or some kind of name is like that uh, used for the camel. And simha is used for the lion. So, but vice versa has not taken place. Sanskrit did not borrow Vedic language or any of these Vedic texts have not borrowed the Dravidian words. This would not have been the case if Indo-Aryans had intruded into a Dravidian northwestern India. So their argument is based on, you know, just hope, faith arg arguments. Trust me, I am a linguist. I am an expert. Believe me, accept what I am saying. 
these are bmac words these are munda words ne now actually there is it is not at all unusual or unnatural for languages to borrow words from each other this is a natural process and it has taken place all over the world everywhere in every period but it is only in this case you know when they are discussing indian things always there is a separate rule for it than for what uh, uh, rule they use for the rest of the world so here you know there all these words become something special they become proof that the indo europeans came from outside the indo aryan people vedic people came from outside but it is natural like what they claim is that there are so many semitic words found in indo european languages now it is found only in the european languages the five european branches as i have shown or sometimes in the other european branches which went from the south like albanian and greek and armenian and they are not found in the eastern languages nevertheless they use these words as an argument to show that the indo europeans were in the steppes and across the caucasus mountains were the semitic people to the south in west asia and these two were in contact with each other and borrowed words from each other in the proto indo european stage so why is it surprising if the vedic people in northwestern india borrowed words from dravidian or munda languages even if they did for example in later sanskrit we have the word neer neer is so common it's used so commonly in hindi film songs for example and mean you know if you see any newspaper where the uh, 12 zodiac signs are given mean is the name for the fish and yet these two mm. words are dravidian words they are borrowed from dravidian languages not because sanskrit did not have words for them or because sanskrit speakers were not acquainted with water and fishes before they met the dravidians and borrowed these words from them people borrow words from other languages as a matter of course so this whole thing about substrates is ridiculous but yet it has been given so much importance now in most many cases the particular animal plant or use of that particular plant may even have come from a certain area of india like you know pepper and cardamom originated in kerala so obviously the sanskrit words ela and maricha are we today use american words for the potato tomato the uh, papaya the ananas the chikku or sapota so does this prove that does there any substrate uh, uh, element in this no so here also obviously so many uh, in different parts of india there are different climates and different types of plants so obviously as these plants move from one part of the country to the other those words also move with them so from dravidian to austric austric to uh, indo european indo european to dravidian these words were traveling all the time so this does not necessarily prove that one of these families came from outside into the area occupied by, by another one of these families so this whole thing is you know just presumptuous and circular reasoning now so actually if you go to see there is nothing in the study of this non indo aryan words in vedic or sanskrit or modern indo aryan which suggests the ait or rules out the oit now next we come to the proto indo european arguments and this is one argument where you know we have to contest with the indian side also to a very great extent because every i have come across a wide range of people not necessarily of one type of uh, a belief who all insist that proto indo european is an artificial thing how can you accept it 
you are accepting the western uh, i am not accepting the western thing when you are using a computer or something you are also accepting western technology aren't you so this is has been reconstructed by the linguists from the available languages and as i have pointed out so many languages have become extinct even within the interior of india whose words have not been taken into account while reconstructing proto indo european also those people who reconstructed it they are not necessarily right they argue among themselves they give alternative etymologies they make up alternative rules so we cannot blindly accept as if it is some you know revelation whatever they say about proto indo european but the fact that there was a proto indo european language and that what they have reconstructed may very vaguely or as uh, as uh, accurately as it is possible for us under the circumstances they have reconstructed that language so accept that reconstruction don't be fanatical about it when they uh, cite a rule of their reconstruction as if it is something which they have actually found recorded somewhere we can reject it but just argue against it and the main thing is the indians who argue against this their only grouse is that our religious language vedic is not accepted as the original language they want to believe that proto indo european is the oldest i mean vedic is the oldest language and all the other languages came from that so i am very frankly i have got very tired of people you know asking me questions why can't this be the case why can't it be an older form of vedic of course it was an older form of vedic proto indo european was an older form of vedic it was also an older form of greek an older form of latin and older form of germanic it was the ancestor of all these languages so uh, some people say why can't it be called proto vedic why must you call it proto indo european well why can't it be called proto english or proto latin proto indo european is a very neutral word because all the descendants are found spread out historically from europe to india so indo european is the word it's a neutral word so let's not give it colors so uh, th that but the thing is that people want vedic to be the original language now you cannot you know argue or explain something to someone who has a religiously ingrained belief in his mind he wants vedic to be the ancestral language because he thinks it's a language of the gods or i don't know what exactly and then they say is there any recorded language before vedic well now andamanese language has been recorded only in two centuries ago when the colonial scholars studied it does it mean that andamanese was not existing before before 200 years or does it mean that uh, 2000 years ago also andamanese must have been exactly the same we don't know and in the case of sanskrit vedic and sanskrit there is such a vast difference between vedic sanskrit and classical sanskrit itself like you know vedic has tones it has ra and ha it has a mm -hmm. a huge vocabulary which is found in classical sanskrit is not there in the vedic language and certain words found in the vedic language i always I, as you know in many of my talks i have already given this example of words like you know uh, udak for water and ap for water they are found in the branches outside india they are not used in any of the modern indo aryan languages all of which have the word derived from the later post vedic word paniyam similarly all the words for night are derived from ratri which only appears in the last part of the rigveda whereas in the or throughout the rigveda you find the two words nak and kshap which are found in all the 11 uh, that is 
Nakht is found in all the 11 branches outside India. And Shab is found in Iranian. Modern Persian Shab, as I have always pointed out, Shab, Shabnam, Shabbakher, Shabbe Bharat, all these words which they use in Urdu. Now, so we see there is a difference even between classical Sanskrit and uh, Vedic Sanskrit. Within Sanskrit itself, you know, I have my article on the old Rigveda and the new Rigveda, just go through it. You will see what a massive difference there is even only in vocabulary between the old and the new Rigveda. And then there are, of course, all the grammatical, phonological and other differences which linguists have pointed out. So how do you claim that the earliest recorded form of Vedic is the earliest recorded uh, language that ever existed? Obviously, a thousand years before the first hymn was recorded, it must have been different. 2000 years before that, it must have been more different. And as you go back in time, you come to this Proto-Indo-European, not exactly as reconstructed by the Western uh, linguists, but reasonably like that. Sir, I have no. a question here. So yeah. I, I had a question here, sir, before we go into the next slide. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's talk about this Proto-Indo-European uh, uh, bit a little more. Now, in this, there are two camps. Yeah. One camp basically literally rejects the Proto-Indo-European hypothesis itself hook, line and sinker. They say yeah. there can be no such thing as a Proto-Indo-European hypothesis. Yeah. I'm talking about the folks in the Indian side. Yeah, yeah. And then there is this side which is reasonable. They say, look, we get there might be a Proto-Indo-European language. But the Proto-Indo-European uh, dictionary or the Shabda Kosh that they have created, which yeah. actually David Anthony famously shares in his book, The Horse, the Wheel and Language, yeah. in, in a lot of detail. I mean, anybody who reads it will realize there are some, you know, leaps of faith and conjectures over there when, when, when they go. Absolutely. So, but the, so, but sir, how does one deal with the first case? which says there can't be anything like Proto-Indo-European. What does one do? You can't deal with them. That is my big problem. You can't deal with these people any more than it's like saying, how will you deal with Zakir Naik if he says that the Quran is the only holy book and uh, other books also lead to the Quran? How will you, can you convince him? Can you argue with him or even discuss this matter with him? So these people, you know, who insist that Vedic must be uh, the original language or there is no such thing as Proto-Indo-European. You can't reason with them. You simply can't. Now, they use it, you know, they say that you are talking about the OIT. But what you are saying supports the AIT because, you know, uh, you are saying that Sanskrit is different from Proto-Indo-European and that certain features of Hittite and Tokharian, etc., for example, are older than the features in Vedic Sanskrit, like laryngeals, for example. So now, uh, there is, for example, uh, you know, when my first book was published and it was uh, in a function, it was actually re released by Raju Bhaiya, who was not the Sarasang Chalak of the RSS at that time, in 1993 in Delhi. And along with my book, uh, another book release was by S.S. Mishra on the linguistic aspects of... So I have met him and spoken with him also. Now, this S he was the head of the linguistics department of the ba uh, Bana Banaras Hindu University. And he conducted... Uh, he carried out studies in all this. And he rejected certain aspects of the Proto-Indo-European re reconstruction. Presently, even Nicolas Kazanas, for example, re uh, rejects it. But, uh, and sometimes they even quote Western scholars who have rejected it. But then when you see those, what those Western scholars have written, you see that it is pure rubbish. Now, uh, what uh, uh, he showed 
was that certain things which are asserted by the proto-indo-european uh, protagonists like for example they say that the original language had laryngeals which are found in hittite but which are not found in any other language they dissolved into different other sounds in other languages and or they say that you know originally there were three vowels a a and o and they all converged into a in sanskrit and uh, iranian that is in indo aryan and iranian whereas in if you compare the other 10 branches you see this difference between a a and o now when they uh, do uh, make these arguments what they seem to feel is you know that if vedic sanskrit is uh, if india was the homeland then vedic sanskrit should be closest to proto indo european but you see this is not the case now suppose you uh, any person has a great 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 grandfather now that great 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 grandfather will have probably 60 70 uh, great 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 grandchildren by now grandsons and grand granddaughters now all of them is may be spread out all over the world and only one particular great 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 grandson may be staying in the same house in the same village where that ancestor lived so do you mean to say that it is necessary that that person who is staying in that house should look most like that ancestor and those who have gone to other places should look different you see there is no logic in this kind of argument because the point of fact is that any language can change anywhere and uh, uh, the previous uh, slide was there anything i left out in that still i don't think so you did not um yeah right right now but in spite of this argument there are many things which show that the rigveda was indeed closest to the proto indo european culture not necessarily the form of the language as reconstructed by the linguists but by various other things for example griffith tells us in his translation of the rigveda in the very preface that the great interest of the rigveda is historical rather than poetical he says in its original language of the rigveda we see the roots and shoots of the languages of greek latin celt teuton and slavonian similarly in its mythology its deities myths and religious beliefs and practices we see the roots and shoots of the all the european countries before the introduction of christianity so vedic language and mythology reflect a situation closest among all the branches to the roots and shoots of any reconstructed or reconstructable proto indo european language and mythology a look at a few fundamental aspects will make this clear now see i am not quoting uh, indian writers who are against the iit i am quoting normal western linguists next now uh, see for example in cons consonants lockwood in his a uh, uh, very uh, seminal book he points out that proto indo european had four series of occlusive consonants unvoiced unaspirated voiced unaspirated unvoiced aspirated and voiced aspirated to make it, uh, explain what that is you know in Sans hindi we learn ka ka ga ga pa pa ba ba cha cha ja ja ta ta da da so these four are these four things now sanskrit has retained these four forms and whereas in all the other languages they have not retained all the four series you know ka kh ga and gha for example or ta tha da and dha they have changed some for example da is supposed to become tha in greek etc now a greek branch for example has preserved only two of the four and germanic has preserved none of the four all four have changed into something else like for example kentum and satem is the division but in uh, germanic it is ha 100 it is neither ka nor sa 
so you see how how the changes have taken place in germany that none of the four uh, have been preserved now tones proto indo european had three free pitch accents acute grave and circumflex only three branches have preserved these vedic ancient greek and lithuanian vedic is the only language to preserve all three as free pitch accents now here you have another example of what i am saying that new languages can still preserve older things than old languages for example see vedic is you know the earliest recorded in detail in the rigveda ancient greek is also a very ancient language but lithuanian is a modern language we are talking about modern lithuanian which was not recorded in earlier times yet it has preserved these three tones these three pitch accents which even latin has not preserved which even classical sanskrit has not preserved it was there in vedic sanskrit not in classical sanskrit these three pitch accents and surprisingly if you come to india you find two indian language indo aryan languages have preserved these pitch accents to this day that is your mother tongue punjabi and my mother tongue konkani these two languages mm. preserve these three tones these three pitch accents for example in uh, punjabi the word koda in three tones it means either a whip a leper or a horse now in konkani also there are i have written this article recently is or was konkani a dialect of marathi on my blog spot in that i pointed mm. out that uh, konkani language has preserved these three accents to this day and punjabi but classical sanskrit also had not preserved it are we to say that modern punjabi and modern konkani are older than classical sanskrit obviously exactly not. that's what i was going to say yeah and uh, exactly so that's what i'm saying lithuanian is not older than ancient latin konkani and punjabi is not older than are not older than ancient uh, classical sanskrit so you see mm -hmm. any language can preserve things and any language can change things another thing is for example sanskrit is a very inflectional language if you take a verb and all the different forms of that verb i have shown in my article on konkani that all the modern indo aryan languages have lost the inflection all except konkani which is still a complicated inflectional structure where the verb undergoes countless changes in the different forms it takes whereas i have given the examples of four languages hindi marathi english and kannada four of the four languages which i am best acquainted with and in all four of them i have shown how the verb can be reduced to a system of stems five stems or six stems very logically and all the forms can be derived from those stems but in konkani you cannot reduce it to stems it is very complicated like sanskrit so uh, uh, this thing has been written in konkani which has not been written in the other languages so you see period is not shown by the what it has retained or not retained now inflection this inflection which i was talking about the morphology of vedic retains most faithfully the infl inflections of primitive indo european this is what chatterjee says now chatterjee is an indian name but he was not an oit supporter he was an ait supporter and a very eminent linguist in india now lockwood in that same book i have quoted before he points out that greek and sanskrit have few completely regular verbs in these languages as konkani also it is the irregular and defective verb which best reflects the prehistoric background which does not mean that the language is the oldest it means that it has preserved that oldest feature now monier williams in his 
dictionary, which is the most important Sanskrit dictionary in existence, I will say, although many people call him a colonial writer and all that. Now, he says Sanskrit, the faithful guardian of old Indo-European forms, shows these inflectional properties better than any other member of the Aryan line of speech. So you see, linguistically, Sanskrit does reflect the Proto-Indo-European system better than most other branches. Although it is not even necessary for it to uh, in the OIT scene, scenario. So right? I just want to remind you now that you have quoted officially, uh, you have quoted Monier Williams, you have been cancelled by all the people who are anti-AIT <laughs> inside <Yeah>. the Hindu fold. <laughs> no, his book is really wonderful. You see even where the word first occurred in which text and all. It is a monumental work. See, we can sit in a armchair and uh, criticize someone for something which he must have taken years and years and spent so much trouble on preparing it. So obviously there will be mistakes in that. Obviously there will be mistakes, but uh, why condemn him or condemn his work? I can never understand this kind of uh, attitude. Yes, you but can point as out they say, so, so see, as, sir, as they say, the attitude is like tomorrow, if uh, someone who I don't like says gravity is real, I'm supposed to yeah. stop believing in gravity because the one yeah. who I dislike has said gravity is real. That is the logic. Yeah. Let's now, go to the next. Now, Child, in his book, you know, uh, his uh, the Aryans, a very iconic book. In it, he gives a list of 72 cognate Proto-Indo-European proto words. And Sanskrit has 70 of those cognates. Greek has 48. Germanic has 46. Italic has 40. Baltic 39. Celtic 25. Slavic, which is spoken in the steppes, has 16. Armenian has 15 and Tokharian has 8. This is the list given by him. I don't know why Hittite is not mentioned, but Hittite is known to have very, very few of the original words. It has been influenced by other languages to a very great extent. Now, in 1993, I have pointed out that a study of the Sanskrit vocabulary shows that it contains the largest number of Proto-Indo-European roots and words in the primary sense, as well as in the form of secondary derivatives. Now, I told you about the word for night, for example, you find nakt which is found in all the 11 branches outside. You find um, Kshap, which is found only in Iranian, but not in the other 10 branches. So it is Sanskrit, which has retained those two, along with a new word that it has uh, this thing. So it shows the three stages, which the AIT talks about. The Indo-European stage, Nak, the Indo-Iranian stage, Kshap, and the Indo-Aryan stage, Ratri. All three are found in this one text, Rigveda, because it occupies that space where all these three actually took place. And now, interestingly, sir, this point about what you're saying is it could not be possible if the entire Rigveda was composed in 300 to 400 years. Only if a yeah, Rigveda yeah, would exactly. be composed in a period of like 2000, 2000 plus years, could this yeah. kind of a change happen linguistically, yeah, right? Exactly. Now, see this. The etymology of words in different languages can be derived, derived only from Sanskrit. Now, Nicholas Kazanas and Conrad Elst have done uh, great research on this. I think Nicholas Kazanas mainly and Conrad Els has brought it out very clearly that Vedic is the only language among all the Indo-European languages which has organic coherence in the formation of words. That it, it has roots or dhatus. If you know Sanskrit, Panini has given all these and other linguists. So there are almost 700 dhatus 
of which more than 200 are very productive roots. They have produced thousands of words, at least hundreds of words, and then their derivatives. Now, each has produced a rich family of lexemes. A lexeme is, you know, distinct verbs, nouns, adjectives, all derived from the same root. Now, while other languages only have isolated words without discernible roots, except through Sanskrit dhatus, that to understand where those words come from, you have to come to the Sanskrit dhatus. Now, uh, we already saw when we were discussing the animals that they say bear is a non-Indian animal. But in fact, you have four species of bears in India only, and only one in Europe and in the steppes. So how can it indicate that we came from the steppes when there are four species in India? And the second thing is that the word, common word for bear in all the branches comes from a Proto-Indo-European root, rep, which, which, and I have quoted Mallory there in the earlier part of my talk. Mallory says that this root is productive only in Sanskrit. It is not found in, that is, if we did not have Sanskrit, no one would have known where that word came from in the other 11 branches or the other 10 or 9 branches which has that word. It is only because Sanskrit and this root, which riksh, from which so many other words are produced, including this riksha, which means it is the word for bear. So because of that, and now Kazanas has shown that Sanskrit alone has the roots and lexemes for many very common Proto-Indo-European words, such as foot, name, father, son, daughter, etc. And also Saraswati, he shows that the root from which Saraswati comes, there is, that root is not found outside. And certainly not, uh, it does not produce the word Haravaiti, which they say is the original name. Or which they say Saraswati was the later name. So this, this uh, uh, I must repeat that uh, uh, Kazanas and uh, else, Conrad else have done a very great uh, job in this respect. In showing how Sanskrit represents the original roots of all the languages, although so many changes have taken place in Sanskrit. Now, uh, we come to mythology and religion. Now, I have dealt with this in detail in my earlier books. I'm giving the references. Anyone can go through that. And also in my blogs. Right from 1993, I've dealt with this. And later, Kazanas has also taken up the issue and gone into more details. Now, the mythology of the Rigveda represents the most primitive and primeval form of Indo-European mythology. As MacDonald puts it, the Vedic gods are nearer to the physical phenomena which they represent than the gods of any other Indo-European mythology. That if you see any other mythology, you see all those gods. You don't know what exactly is the origin of those gods. Because there are also the mythical stories of how they, they are descendants of this person or that giant or that demon or that uh, supreme force. But actually all these Vedic and Indo-European gods are derived from nature mythology. And this nature mythology is clearer, clear only in the Vedic uh, mythology. So even MacDonald points out that the Vedic gods are nearer to the physical phenomena which they represent. For example, Indra is a rain god and he kills a big serpent. I have spoken of that also, a great serpent. This myth is found in Germanic, Greek and Hittite mythology and also indirectly in Iranian mythology. Because Verathragna, the god of victory, kills a great serpent. Vritra. Verathragna means the Sanskrit name Vritragna or Vritrahan. Which is the name of Indra because he kills the great serpent Vritra. So, 
all these mythologies have this myth but you don't know what is the original nature uh, of that myth how did it come but in rigveda you find all the steps of that mythology right from the natural stage where indra is killing the demon who stops their infall and in later texts you find it become more and more personalized where vritra even becomes a brahmin because of killing whom indra is punished so you see all kinds of changes take place now the original form can be only seen in the rigvedic mythology next now all the even when uh, if you take out a list of uh, like for example see in the bottom of that uh, this thing you'll see in 19 common deities in my article i have given all vedic has all the 19 greek has only 9 avestan has 7 germanic has 7 roman has 4 baltic 4 slavic in the steps has only 3 celtic has 2 hittite has 1 and albanian has 1 and any other representative list like kazana says also produced a, another list all will show the same picture that all the deities which are found in more than two mythologies unless they are borrowed in historical times such as greek god apollo was borrowed by the romans we know it historically so it is not an original italic god apollo he is a original greek god whom the romans borrowed but if you see the original gods of the different branches which are common to more than one branch you see they are all there in the rigveda in rigvedic mythology then um, uh, next now in my uh, not only are they their cognates in all the other branches but sometimes you know even when that uh, is found in two mythologies you will never be able to know that the two are related to each other unless you see the vedic mythology which connects the two like for example the teutonic mythology has the vanir according to teutonic germanic mythology there are two races of gods the asir that is the asura and the vanir and then there are all my myths about them in greek mythology you have hermes the god hermes and his son pan you know pan who has half a goat and half a man now and who plays the pan pipes now it is impossible to connect absolutely impossible to connect the vanir with hermes and pan there is no similarity between them but both of them can be connected only through the vedic sarma and pani in my second book in 2000 see i have given a full chapter sarma and the panis where i have shown how vanir also represent this sarma and pani myth and hermes and pan also represent sarma and pani myth and hermes and pan are derived from the same roots as sarma and pani that is their cognate words and vanir is related to pani from which you also get the word vani vanijya vani vanijya etc commerce now the teutonic and greek have versions have no similarity at all with each other and cannot be connected except through the vedic myth next now uh, this is the case vedic mythology compared to the other mythologies now according to the uh, ait you know two branches separated from the other 10 branches in russia itself in step in the steps and they came all the way eastward and settled down in central asia where they formed a common culture then they separated and composed the rigveda and the avesta so if the rigvedic mythology is shows such an ancestral position in comparison with the other 10 branches the avestan mythology which also came with them all the way according to them and only separated after central asia that should also show similarity but no 
on the contrary there is no nothing in common with other indo european mythologies and everything is common with vedic mythology you see all the conflicts and the connections and the like vayu is there the god of uh, then indra is turned into a demon varuna uh, mithra is there all of which you know are exactly corresponding to the vedic myths so avestan mythology should also have represented an ancestral mythology if this ait was true but the avestan mythology stands aloof from all other indo european mythologies and is connected only to vedic mythology so all these things show that the indo european roots and shoots are present only in indo aryan which is clearly the only branch rooted in the original indian homeland see sounds can change languages can change but the culture represented by the mythology and by all this uh, you know formation of words it is found only in indo aryan so that proves the oit if, if you want to as i said this is not really the sole criteria which is closest to the ancestor does not prove the homeland but nevertheless this factor is also there sir now, i have a query here now yeah. um i, I you yourself has said that this does not make a razor sharp and a airtight case in case of oit but sir don't you think when it comes to certain religious stories or uh, legends or whatever word we want to use mythologies or whatever we want to call them it, it, could it not be the case of just you know people coming up with similar stories across cultures with and without even interacting with each other necessarily because what happens at times is that as human beings have evolved it has been an interplay with your surrounding and your environment and it just seems to be that uh, pre abrahamic cultures whether you want to call them pagan whether you want to call them whatever non abrahamic yeah. animism or what it's basically very similar across the world so don't you yeah. think that this point could just be again one of those things like i said in the last time a coincidence no it uh, this is uh, these things like uh, if you compare the indo european mythologies the names and things are not coincidence now for example what you say is right all the pagan cultures and hinduism is very much a pagan culture and uh, a collection of all the indian pagan cultures i should say now it is true now you must have heard so many people saying that uh, the stone of mecca was originally a shivlinga and it was worshiped there and people used to go as pilgrims from here to arabia in pre islamic times and people used to come from there to somnath and all that you must have heard so from that they decide that those people were worshippers of shiva and of the linga but you know they were worshippers of their own gods and they did not call that uh, structure linga they had their own arabic word for it so you see although the common practices were there all over the world they did not have common names and common origin uh, in that linguistic sense whereas these indo european things uh mythological elements have the same name and the same uh, origins and you see the nature origin points only in the rigveda it is a linguistic issue as i said there is no linguistic connection between the arabic culture of uh, pre islamic arabia and the indian culture of hinduism and yet they have common elements because they are common pagan elements but the names are different see languages were different you can continue with uh, with the slide yeah now 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 we come to pre indo iranian linguistics we have already seen in the mythology itself that this pre indo iranian uh, thing gets uh, proves to be very dubious 
because if indo aryan mythology as represented in the rigveda shows the very roots and shoots of all the 12 branches and the avestan mythology doesn't show any connection with the other 10 branches to the west then this theory about indo iranian two branches which sometimes uh, like some of them foolishly argue that it is one branch indo iranian not two branches indo aryan and iranian there were two branches which split later but many of them accept that there were two branches which just came together from the west now you know uh, baltic and slavic for example people call it balto slavic because there are many similarities between the two branches but still they are accepted as two different branches because the isoglosses and various other features show that they were not originally this one branch but because of close association with each other historically even prehistorically in uh, eastern europe uh, some certain elements were de developed in common now indo aryan and iranian have all the common elements because after all the other 10 branches had migrated out these were the two only two remaining in the harappan area in the a period of the new rigveda the culture that developed was is found only in these two because these two were the only ones which remained together so that common culture is not a pre culture which they have retained it is a culture which they developed in common because of their close proximity and common cultural history in the uh, period of the new rigveda so uh, you know uh, their theory is that you know indo aryan and iranian came from the west whether as one branch or two and they settled in central asia and then split apart now the mythology itself says that it cannot be so because avestan mythology has no connection with the other two 10 branches but there are other things also um, this according to this theory the ait pre rigvedic indo aryan history lies to the west of the rigvedic area that is of haryana to afghanistan so what is pre rigvedic first there is the indo iranian phase that they talk about uh, it is to the northwest in central asia according to them and uh, even before that is the pre indo iranian stage which is further west that is it is indo european in the steps then these two branches come migrating all the way to central asia so that is the pre indo iranian stage even after they have left the other 10 branches and then in central asia they develop a common indo iranian culture and then they split and you get indo aryan and iranian that is the theory but do the linguistic facts and data indicate or support this scenario because in the isoglosses i have already shown that there are certain isoglosses which link iranian with greek and armenian like for example the conversion of s to h the retention of tt as a, a st whereas in sanskrit uh, sanskrit has retained the original tt whereas all these three branches tt has become st in certain words this is linguistic technicalities but these show that iranian developed these changes in common with those two branches while rigvedic did not so it cannot be that indo aryan and iranian are related branches which came separating from all the others to central asia now um, when they uh, now how do they show that there was a indo iranian ling, uh, before the rigveda and the avesta now first is the um, bmac language which i have already spoken about now i'll go a little bit in detail now in this article he gives 18 such words which he says are bmac words 
which the which are not indo aryan or indo european words according to witzel they are words which these two languages in central asia borrowed from the local non indo european culture and language of that area again another kind of language x because there are no records of that language but from these words in rigveda and avesta he uh, tries to reconstruct that completely fake language the bmsc language and he says these 18 words come from that now all these are very common words in later texts but seven of the, these 18 words are post rigvedic words that is ishti brick godhuma wheat shana sasarpa khadga veena and khara are post rigvedic they are not found in the rigveda at all though they are found in iranian of these it uh, means related words are found in iranian some of them now all the other uh, uh, 11 words uh, uh, the, uh, of the others 10 of the 11 are found only in the new rigveda and only one word in this list bhishaj is found 40 times in the new rigveda and four times in the old rigveda so obviously a word which was so important that it got interpolated into the old rigveda but it is still a word of, of the new rigveda so you see sir just just for the benefit of everyone can you explain once again for the millionth time what is the difference between the new rigveda and the old rigveda so whenever a word that is common to the avesta is found yeah. in the rigveda why it matters that each and every time it is only found in the new rigveda and why it is not found in the old rigveda and why does it matter what is the difference between this whole chronology can you please explain because what happens yeah. is every time we talk about this every yeah, time it is like somebody or the else will say but dekha iran ka word india mein aaya are baba kahan aaya wo to samjho so can you please explain what is the yeah. old rigveda and what is the new rigveda on the basis of linguistic uh, uh, provenance of words and also on the basis of the structure and uh, formation of the rigveda the western scholars have divided uh, i have shown that witzel and everyone right from oldenburg till uh, modern scholars they accept that books 2 to 7 the rigveda has 10 books or mandalas so 2 to 7 are called family books or family mandalas and they are older than books 1 8 9 10 and within the family books book 5 is later than the other five because it has many words in common with the non family books but not with the other family books now they are not found in the other family books those words so and many other features are there i have given many more additional features which proves this classification which shows that books 2 3 4 6 7 constitute the old rigveda which existed earlier and after a gap of a few years then you got the new rigveda which consists of books 5 1 8 9 and 10 they were all added and merged together i have even shown the evidence in the number of verses etc and the number of interpolated hymns classified by the western scholars as to the whole process you know in my third book the rigveda and the avesta the final evidence there is a this thing on the chronology internal chronology of the rigveda where i have given in pitiless detail and it is very technical very heavy but it explains everything about how the rigveda was formed in this order and it fits in with the western order remember this now all these words if they belong to a pre rigvedic period in central asia they should have been found in the old rigveda not in the new rigveda but you see 
seven of them are not found in the Rigveda at all. Another ten are found only in the New Rigveda, and only one is found almost most of the times in the New Rigveda, and just four times in the Old Rigveda, where it obviously it is an interpolated word, which before the Rigveda was given its final shape, it was incorporated in those hymns. Now. So how can this, these words be pre-Rigvedic words from Central Asia, which came later? Because even geographically, you see that the Rigveda ventures into the uh, Central Asia only in the period of the Atharva Veda, which talks of bulk and all this bacteria. So, uh, and before that, in the Rigveda, in the later books, you see them expanding into Afghanistan. So in line with that, even these words, are found only in the new Rigveda. So how do you say that is pre-Rigvedic and that these words entered the Rigveda in a pre-Rigvedic period? So this is the kind of pre-Indo-Iranian linguistics where you just have to take them at their word even when it contradicts all the data. Next. Um, now, actually, the, uh, another thing is the R and L divide. You know, in the pre, uh, in the Proto-Indo-European language, there are two sounds, R and L. Now, in uh, according to all linguists, in Indo-Iranian, that is in the Vedic language and in the Avestan language, R and L have merged together. So, for example, the sun, uh, Sanskrit word Surya. In Latin, in uh, Greek, it is Helios. Now, S becomes H, we know. But what is the connection between L and R? So L was the original form, which in Vedic and in Avestan, it has become R. Now this word I gave because it's the one I thought of immediately, but there is a whole uh, uh, study behind this. Now, the Rigveda does contain some words with L, but when you see statistically, they are a small number and they are found later mostly in later texts, but some are found even in the older ones. But it is accepted that they came from the East or that they are not, they don't actually represent the language of the Rigveda. And in the Mitanni and Avestan languages, in Avesta there is no sound L at all. It has completely become R. And in the Rigveda, it is R and a few Ls. But in later Sanskrit, L has comes back in full form. That is many words which have L in other branches. You find L in later Sanskrit, classical Sanskrit. How is this? Now, this is a big linguistic problem, which only a linguist will understand why it is a problem. And M.M. Uh, uh, Deshpande, an Indian name, but he is a co-editor of Witzel's journal, the uh, electronic journal of Vedic studies. And he notes that all three groups, the Proto-Iranians, the Western branch, that is the Proto uh, Western branch of the Proto-Indo-Aryans, that is the Mitanni, and the Eastern branch, that is the Vedic people. So all these three people, the Mitanni, the Avestan, and the Vedic, all three of them represent the R-only dialects. That is, L has merged into R. So this is a Indo-Iranian linguistics that R has, uh, L has merged into R. There is no original L in the Indo-Iranian languages. That is what the linguists say. Now, next, but this creates a problem, as I said, because uh, later you find R and L in full force. So 
and this is something that not i am not pointing out deshpande points out in this article that the dialect of the redactors of the vedas when the vedas was given its final form it is supposed to have happened more in the east when it was given its absolute final the final form was given but then the recited veda it was more to the east and they didn't make any changes in it but their pronunciation affected it like you know when in latin in latin the alphabet c is pronounced k kentum whereas in french it etc you will know it is pronounced s as s because the satemization has taken place in the modern italic languages whereas latin had k so it's kent not sent we use the french word sent now so many catholic priests apparently i have read this in uh, conrad's book when they are pronouncing latin they automatically pronounce k as s the uh, alphabet c as s instead of k because they are pronouncing it in the later style so they are reading the original latin text where it should have pronounced been pronounced k but they pronounce it s so in that same way when the rigvedic uh, was being recited and was it was given its final shape the people who did this redaction they were speaking an r and l dialect which had both r and l and so they uh, put back the l in those words they pronounce it in their way and uh, they pronounced l instead of r now you know modern vedic people when they are reciting the sounds ala and alha are pronounced as d and dh they don't pronounce the l they pronounce it as d and dh d dh not l l so they pronounce it as to the pronunciation they are used to in classical sanskrit now uh, these redactors put the l back into some of the vedic words where the original vedic dialect had only r now all the three indo aryan iranian and mitanni that is vedic uh, iranian and mitanni had only r which means that indo aryan as indo iranian these two branches when they were coming from uh, uh, the steppes to central asia they had only r or they developed only r on the way l was completely dropped then how did this l come back inside india now i am not saying this now deshpande says this that um, this is a very strange and he says we have to explore this difference between the r only dialect and the r and l dialect and possibly an l only dialect now when all the three oldest forms of indo aryan and iranian that is mitanni vedic and avestan have only r where did this l come from that is a linguistic question so who are mm. the speakers of this l and r language in the east now see next what uh, deshpande himself says um he says where did they come from were the speakers of the rnl dialect of pre vedic indo aryan a totally different branch from the indo iranian were they a completely different branch he says these are difficult questions anyway even if it was a different branch we have to assume that they entered india before the indo iranians that is before the vedic people because it uh, it is found more in the east they are found to the east of the vedic people so if they came from outside before the vedic people and they migrated to the east and later the vedic people came and settled in the northwest the indo iranians so these people who speak the rnl dialect are older than the indo iranians 
and they are found in the east within India. Now the entire weight of the Aryan invasion theory linguistic arguments, you go through them all again, they deal with the Rigveda and the Avesta. They don't deal with these eastern dialects at all. And even then, it is such a big task for them to try to prove that the Vedic people came from outside. So how can they account for these eastern people who are pre-Rigvedic and who are in the east, in the interior of India? How can they explain the pre-Indo-Iranian Aryans of the east? Now, uh, now, it is not only Deshpande and the RNL divide. From day one of Indological linguistic studies, Linguists have been finding evidence of totally different Indo-European speaking dialects, different from the Indo-Iranian paradigm which they have created to explain the AIT. And these uh, are found to the east of Vedic territory, deeper within India, pre-Indo-Iranian. Remember, this is the linguistics we are discussing. Now, these inconvenient Easterners are generally swept under the carpet. They are not discussed. Only in extremely technological or technical uh, linguistic studies, they'll discuss them without discussing the AIT uh, problem. Now, they have found, but to explain this, they have, have a theory of two waves of Aryan immigrants. So this is a discrete corollary. When you're discussing the AIT, they won't talk about this. But if you see the linguistic studies, you find this two waves of Aryan immigrants. And they have even found racial differences among them, dialectal differences. They have even tried to identify them with different historical people, etc. Now, and the Vedic Aryans are repeatedly designated and classified as immigrants of the second wave. So which was this first wave which represents a pre-Indo-Iranian linguistic stage and is found deeper inside India? How can it be fitted, fitted into the AIT paradigm? Next. So the AIT simply cannot explain this. For example, now the K.R. Norman in his study of the variation between the old Indo-Aryan that is Vedic and classical and middle Indo-Aryan that is the Prakrits. He finds that these Prakrits contain many forms which are not found in Sanskrit or sometimes they are found in other branches outside India to the west. They are found in these Prakrits. So which means they are not in the Indo-Iranian languages which they have reconstructed, you know, the Vedic Avastan. So, and they say that, uh, he says, the direct equivalent is found in an Indo-European language other than Sanskrit. And then he suggests that these must be going back to lost old Indo-Aryan dialects. But where are, which are they? They are pre-Indo-Iranian. He says, I know no attempt to make a complete list of this. And it is scattered, means if you read the work of some linguist, you'll find some words and things mentioned there, etc. And he says that until such a collection is made, the amount of material available for this pre-Indo-Iranian languages to the East will be underestimated. Next. Now, as I said, the Aryan invasion theory has absolutely no explanation for these older and Eastern lost Indo-European or Indo-Aryan dialects within India. But the out of India theory does. Because as I pointed out, the Proto-Indo-European language is reconstructed not from all the original dialects in the original homeland, but only from the records of the 12 surviving branches of Indo-European languages. You know what those 12 are because I have constantly been naming them in my talk. 
and they are as the oit points out descended from the emigrant anu and druhyu dialects and rigveda and vedic is descended from the puru dialects but there were other eastern indo indo european dialects in india to the east and south of the puru dialects the dialects of the yadus turasus and ikshvakus including the ancestral forms of sinhalese bangani etc that remained unrecorded but left clues in sanskrit and in the prakrits or in modern indo aryan languages next now in my very first book i pointed out the confusion arises because people insist on presuming that the vedic language was the earliest form of indo aryan that classical sanskrit from developed from it that the prakrits developed from that and then all the modern indo aryan languages came from that so they think that vedic is the ancestral so let alone the pet hindu theory that vedic is the proto indo european it is not even proto indo aryan because there were it is only the puru language the vedic language is the language of the purus whereas there were other indo european dialects to the east which were not descended from it they were the languages of the yadus turasus ikshvakus now i pointed out that the earliest form of proto indo european speech was spoken in the interior of india and in late prehistoric times pre rigvedic times it spread out as far north and west as kashmir kashmir and afghanistan that is the druhus anus etc kept spreading out whereas the inner dialects remained within india the yadu turasu ikshvaku etc so Next. sir i just want to pause yeah. here you made a very important observation mm, you have said that the vedic sanskrit was the language of a particular tribe yeah the rigveda is a book of a particular tribe obviously today it has spread out and it has become a pan india book obviously yeah. with the, you know the advent of time with people adopting each other's practices and and how memes travel yeah. uh now this particular point that you make it's very important because this series is going to be staying with us forever hopefully youtube does not shut me down <laughs> assuming but uh, <laughs> but this riles a lot of people up in the hindu side every time you say this yeah. it it uh, i don't know how to put it it hurts their sentiments I, you know i don't know what to do but but it's very important to uh, that i let you make your point here that yeah. how does it matter how do you explain it to a person who says nahi vedic culture sabka culture tha what do you do with such yeah. people no you can't prove and the, um, uh, the saddest part of it is i have read references to myself by various people saying that talgeri claims vedic was the ancestor of all the languages well really what can i say now i mean i'm just uh, tongue tied when i hear this rubbish now um now the i said that the original which i called in my very first book i called it proto proto indo european that is the proto indo european which the westerners have developed linguistics have developed which hindus reject it was the and uh, they have reconstructed it from only 12 branches which represent the puru anu and druhyu dialects but there was an earlier proto proto indo european which probably had connections with the uh i pointed out uh, how austronesian languages have numbers and all common so they if they were in eastern india you see in the very in, in ancient most period 
the proto proto indo european language must have been in contact with all that so that is where those common elements develop now the modern indo aryan languages are not descendants of rigvedic but of other dialects the inner indo european dialects this is what i wrote in 1993 remember and finally they came out in their for, uh, in the form of new indo aryan dialects as heavily sanskritized as the dravidian languages i don't know if when people you know refuse to accept uh, i recently also i've seen many recent posts on the internet where they say dravidian languages came from sanskrit and then some kannada or malayalam person or telugu person will give a list of words used in kannada malayalam or telugu which are derived from sanskrit and they say see this proves that these languages came from sanskrit now that is the way even the dravidian languages you can claim the myth people try to claim who have no knowledge of linguistics that it came from they came from sanskrit but uh, you no one has even suspected that even the modern languages of north india the indo aryan modern indo aryan languages are not really derived from sanskrit they are derived from the other languages which died out and which became heavily sanskritized so whatever sanskrit elements you see are actually the yadut uh, turvasu ikshvaku etc dialects which changed and changed and changed with uh, sanskrit influence and borrowed words and this and that until finally you have the modern indo aryan languages where they still retain clues of their earlier origins but they have become heavily sanskritized and in the case of dravidian languages whatever anyone says about kannada malayalam and telugu no serious linguist will say that uh, they came from sanskrit but in the case of indo aryan languages of modern uh, eastern and uh, central india they blindly assume that they came from sanskrit which is wrong now uh, that is actually closes all the thing if anyone can think of any linguistic point not this about vedic being proto indo european and all that but any other linguistic argument for the aryan invasion theory which i have not touched upon in this then they have to bring it out see what the conclusion we get from this whole study of the linguistic arguments we have i think covered all the categories of uh, discussion linguistic discussion now all of them prove the out of india theory which explains all the facts some facts it does not explain because you see we don't have the facts but they don't explain the ait also the i mean the ait does not explain certain facts also because we don't have records of all these things we can only speak about what we have records we cannot make up uh, data just to prove a point you know so when some people ask me something what is the proof for this where is this i can't show it but from the available data everything linguistic proves the oit and everything disproves the ait amt completely so it is only time for indians to open their eyes and examine the case without any bias now uh as i say for the languages it is the same for the religion i have given this in many great detail in all my articles on hindutva and whatever whatever that hinduism is not the vedic it is not derived from the vedic religion the vedic culture spread all over this thing uh, country and it became the umbrella culture it became the elite layer of the pan indian religion which is a combination of all the religions of ancient india of the uh, ikshvakus of the yadus and turvasus of the dravidian language speakers of the austric language speakers everyone so you find all these elements from different parts the tantric elements philosophy for example is not there in the purus it was there among the ikshvakus 
you see all the uh, Upanishads, they, they, for example, some of them take place, the discussions in the courts of Janaka, who is in the East. And you find all Indian philosophical systems have originated around Bihar, whether it is Buddhism, Jainism, or Charvaka philosophies, or the Upanishads. All of them originated because it's philosophical thinking. That type of religion or spiritualism was found in the East. Further East were found the Tantric rites of Tantric uh, Hinduism. And in the whole rest of India, you found this culture of idol worship, which is today the main, main face of Hinduism. And all of this is Hinduism, all of this is Indian, but all of it is not Vedic. And anyone who wants to try to derive this from Vedic, no, they have run into very great difficulties, I'm sorry to say. And they also insult the other parts of India and they insult those aspects of Hinduism, like idol worship. When you say Vedic people did not have idol worship, or you try to find proof for idol worship in the Rig Veda, you are simply uh, making a mess of everything. Oh. So we have to remember, this is not a Vedic religion, not an Indo-Aryan religion. It is a pan-Indian religion, Hinduism. And elements in it come from all parts of India. And uh, yeah, and uh, this is my last slide, right? Yeah. Ah, so now let me add that India, remember, represents the world in uh, microcosm. I have pointed out in the very beginning of the talk that um, when I, or rather when I was talking about numbers, how you find the very simplest form of numbers and the most complicated form of numbers in India. You know, India is the only place in the world which has native to it all the three races, Caucasoid, Mongoloid and Negroid. Because in the Northeast, in the Himalayas, you find the Mongoloid race, which are all purely Indian. In the Andaman Islands, you find the Andamanese people who belong to the Negroid race who are also purely Indian. In most of India, you find the Caucasoid race, going by that classification, I'm saying. And sometimes some people postulate a fourth race, Australoid. You find it in the Vedda tribe of Sri Lanka. So you see, India represents the world in short. You know, out of 19 basically families in the world, language families, six are found in India. And uh, at least three or four of them only in India. Like, uh, you know, Andamanese, Gurushaski and uh, Dravidian. And Indo-European languages which dominate the world today, they also originated in India. You know, in uh, climate, we have the maximum area under permanent ice and snow, as I quoted once in the uh, earlier in this talk. We also have the hottest place in India, Jakobabad, presently in Pakistan. We have dry areas where there is no rain at all. And the wettest areas in the world are also in India, in Assam. You see, you find tribal people in certain parts of India who are almost in the nude, who are just hunter-gatherers and who live in the caves. And you find the very most sophisticated types of cuisine, the most sophisticated types of uh, costumes, the most sophisticated types of architecture also in India, just like that numeral system. So everything, you know, India represents the world in microcosm and we have to be proud of it and accept all of it as ours. Now, something you will not like today, India is out to destroy the culture of the Andaman Islands. And uh, no one will care. No one will care about it because I don't think anyone considers that the culture of the Andaman Islands is really part of our culture and it has to be preserved 
in the way they follow it, not in the way we want them to follow it. That is more right, or this is this is this is a very important point. So I had a few questions, but I'll leave them here because I think it's very important to take the live viewers' question first. I'll start. Sir, questions So somebody has said, how do we explain the Indo-Aryan and Dravidian languages remaining so different, even though Indo-Aryan has traveled so far otherwise? And in brackets they have said, and I assume transformed any local languages in the new places? Question mark. Have I transformed? What? I'll question? repeat it again. So the first part of the question is, how do we explain the Indo-Aryan and Dravidian languages remaining so different, even though Indo-Aryan has traveled so far otherwise? And the assumption they are saying they're making is uh, they have transformed other local languages in new places too. So basically, See, because unka India... kehna hai ki mein Dravidian language thi, wo influence kyo nahi hui, bahar itni dur jake kyo influence hui. I think that's what. See, it is not that people sat down in a conference and decided let us impose our language on these people. History takes place in different. Uh, it history has its own logic. When something has happened, it has happened. You cannot say why it has happened as if someone you know set out with a purpose that like God has a purpose for this world. Even these people who spread languages had purposes. No, this happens sometimes. It, Changes sometimes it doesn't, and this question you know contrasts sharply with all those people whom I just mentioned who try to show that Kannada, Telugu, Malayalam came from Sanskrit, and then they point to the large number of Sanskrit words in these languages. So, how, it has influenced them. How can you say it has not influenced? Yes, in the basics, it has remained uh, different, but that is it, that is the richness of India. I can ask you how in Andaman Islands. You see reference to the Andaman Islands even in Buddhist texts 2000 years ago. So you see, it is not that it is something which the Britishers discovered. And even the name is supposed to be uh, from some myth connecting Hanuman with uh, those islands. But uh, whether that is true or not, it was known to Indians. And yet, and in those very same Buddhist texts, a text called the Lalita Vistara, which I mentioned in my article, they had numbers for 10 raised to 421. And they knew about the Andaman Islands. Why is it the Andamanese people still have numbers only from 1 to 3? I mean, you can't uh, give any logic for this and say why this happened and why this didn't happen. It happens. Some things don't happen. If you have any logic which proves this on the basis of the AIT, you can present it. You can't just ask because it is not in any way an objection to the out of India theory. I guess sir, that stems from the nature human beings are. I remember Michael Shermer had written a beautiful article about this that you know human beings are pattern seeking animals. So we are always seeking for paternity in everything. Basically, evolutionarily, I'm pattern seeking animals. So we try to find patterns in everything where there may be none. It just happened, as you said, you know, memes flow in a certain way. There is no logic behind it. I, like for like, what is the logic for uh, Brahui and Burushaski existing in those areas? Right. There's no logic behind it. Yeah. They just happen to be existing there. And uh, or or what is the logic behind sometimes, you know, the word like Vatura existing in Sinhalese all the way even today? I mean, yeah. why? I mean, nobody asks why for that. But yeah. it's just, you know, because sometimes we are, uh, you know, we are pattern seeking animals. I guess paternity is a common problem with human beings. And sometimes it is just our luck, like this Sinhalese language preserving all these things. 
like the mm-hmm. uh, you know second and uh, third stages of your know, numbers or preserving the word vatura if it had not you know we would not have got all this evidence it is a luck sometimes that these things happen so it is a bad luck that certain other things are not represented what can we do about that yeah i agree so somebody has asked is there a relation between the word arya and our ours etc and das and they no, no. there yeah. there no there because you see that, uh, because see uh, i have shown you know in personal pronouns like you know uh, vayam and uyam is v and u in sanskrit you can see the connection with english v and u and also with the avestan words but in latin it is nos and vos and in sanskrit you find other form you see sanskrit has a wide vocabulary so other uh, forms of the word for uh, first and second person plural are nas and vas in sanskrit so nas and vas have become v and u in latin but vayam and uyam have become in uh, have their counterparts in germanic languages and avestan so you see sir, different things are preserved in different branches all of which are you find in sanskrit that is the um logic now as for this particular word arya and our now our is also a personal pronoun you know in sanskrit we have singular dual and plural now singular is aham tvam plural is vayam yuyam and dual is avam vayam avam yuyam yuvam sorry avam and yuvam now from avam and yuvam you get the words our and your you get where those same roots from which you get the word our english our from the same root as the word avam which is the um, dual word in sanskrit so it has nothing no connection with the word arya all right sir uh, i think this is a valid question because let us assume somebody is watching this talk or this series for the first time so they will ask this question and i'm happy somebody has so somebody has asked so is the hypothesis that the ivc is indo aryan true or false what is the ivc then yeah no it is indo aryan because i have shown because uh, the uh, rigveda was composed in the exact territory of the indus valley civilization in the exact same period and there is no proof that it was dravidian because as i said the brahui language is now accepted as having gone there from the south so there is no reason you know just because someone has concocted this theory you are going to go by that concocted theory and not uh, ask for any other evidence that is ridiculous or you can prove me wrong as i said when i show this uh, chronology of the rigveda prove me wrong no one dares to do it and that chronology proves that the rigveda was composed from long before 2500 bc till 1500 bc or so it was given its final form in that identical harappan era another thing like when i spoke about cattle they talk about indus valley culture being a um, urban culture and the vedic people being pastoral people who came from the pastoral the pastoral uh, yes i was just about came, to raise that point yeah but the only cattle found in india are the indian cattle so what did the uh, invading uh, aryans do did they bring european cattle till the borders of india and then they cut them all up and uh, ate them all up including the bones leaving no traces of them and then they entered india and uh, their uh, pastoral uh, hobbies were transferred to the indian cattle so obviously they on, did not bring on the cattle. contrary there is a paper paper that shows the movement of cattle from india exactly, to the outside exactly. i have quoted that also in my article so uh, you see how do they decide 
and remember where are those indian cattle first domesticated you look it up in wikipedia or any uh, uh, encyclopedia it was in the harappan area so how do you say the harappans were not pastoral and the indus valley people were pastoral because the very same logic by which the archaeological logic by which the indus valley civilization is known that also presents us with the logic that the uh, indian cattle were domesticated there so they were pastoral so how do you differentiate between the vedic and this using such corny logic you cannot it is the uh, okay you have to give some See, solid again, evidence are, if you want these are questions that may look superficial but actually i am glad people are asking these questions so yeah, someone yeah. has asked before english what language did the indians speak or communicate with each other matlab basically unka prashn ye hai ki agar ye bhinn bhinn prakar ki bhashaye thi aur angrezi nahi thi so how were these people communicating with each other then because the ivc is quite a long one right all the way from gujarat all the way up to harappa mohenjodaro and all those areas they must be speaking different languages sir right who must be speaking the ivc people the different uh, are we assuming the entire ivc civilization all the way from dholavira all yeah. the way down to harappa and mohenjodaro speaking the same language so yeah. how are they communicating with each other no i have pointed that out uh, in my very first book that the ivc is a combination of the purus anus and the yadus to the south because gujarat and that area is the yadu territory remember so they speak uh, different uh, uh, dialects of indo european what we see in the rigveda is the puru dialect which was central to haryana remember and haryana is just a part of the ivc territory to the west was the territory which in the rigveda itself we know to be anu territory because sudas my uh, uh, conquers westwards into the anu territory and drives the anu tribes out to the west and the iranians and the uh, greeks and albanians and armenians migrate out but even after that in the uh, puranic texts at the time of uh, in the buddhist period we know that there were uh, in the punjab area there were still anu people the uh, kingdoms were all anu kingdom the madras the kekayas and others they are anu tribes they are not puru tribes as per the puranic classification so you see the, uh, no one completely left the area they just kept adapting to the new languages and what happened was that they must have had different uh, uh, languages within harappa mohenjodaro but they were all these different indo european dialects like i have already spoken today of how there were dialects to the east and west of the vedic people now another point i want to add here to you know add some more weight to your answer uh, um so here's the thing how do the german and the french interact with each other they don't speak in english with each other uh, yeah, in some yeah. occasions if it's a french person living in germany they read german they understand german and communicate and vice versa if it's a german living in france they they try to learn french and they do uh, when we trade with each other we try to understand the language of the other person for example today when i was trying to do some trade in spain Uh, I knew they did not know English, and they are very anti-English speaking. By the way, they don't like it if you speak or try to speak in English with them. They had that thing that I'm not going to speak in English. So what did I do? I wanted to, to trade with them. I started learning a few Spanish words, and I tried to work around that. And they, because they saw me trying to learn Spanish, they tried to learn Hindi. Now today, and in the past too, there were translators. 
people you know if i was a trader going to sumeria or mesopotamia now it's not like i spoke their language but the it, there is clear evidence that the folks in ivc whether or not there is a it is a rigvedic civilization or not is a separate issue the people in ivc were trading with people all the way down to mesopotamia they were not speaking yeah. the same language right yeah. so why is it such a big deal that they can trade with somebody all the way out there and they can't even live across each other i mean i have never found this are wo baat kaise karte honge kaun sa unhone gilli danda khelna roz ek dusre ke sath i mean i don't get it what's the big deal i mean if i move to germany today i know they're not going to entertain english i'll learn german that's how people are human beings adopt right we adopt to the new new reality and the new uh, new uh, atmosphere right even in modern india before the internet uh, era you know in there are huge parts of india rural india where people only knew the local language and the local culture they may heard people from their families working in mumbai or delhi who of course knew the other languages and english and hindi and the other local languages but by and large the people only know their local culture even in this day and age so obviously in ancient times the people who actually interacted with other areas must have been only the elite few like traders scholars etc and we know that uh, Fr- uh, french at one time and before that latin were the lingua and before that greek were the lingua franca for europe we know that in india sanskrit was the lingua franca all over india so and then later probably other prakrits so each uh, area uh, era produces its own uh, lingua francas and connect, communicating languages that is uh, does not really require any explanation as such i feel all right so somebody has made a comment i have to share it uh, you can choose to avoid it and ignore it somebody says i appreciate your work shrikant ji but i think all the linguistic genetic evidence suggests that the vedic religion came from the indo aryan migration you can call indus valley culture as hindu but it was not vedic somebody has written this comment there no i have said that vedic was only the culture of the purus who were in haryana and then who spread slightly and it is in post with rigvedic times that it spread into the rest of india and even the madras and uh, uh, this thing of historic times they were influenced by vedic culture so obviously whatever is vedic in india is post rigvedic after the, during the rigvedic period also they were only restricted to haryana and other areas where they spread out as per the rigvedic data so i have never claimed that all the harappan people spoke vedic in fact i have pointed out that they were iranians uh pro- proto iranians and probably there was still some proto druyus left there who later you know they merged the language with the local language so okay sir uh, yeah no no please continue please continue yeah so the, there is no question of uh, i have never claimed in fact i think in this uh, talk just a short while ago i made it clear that vedic is not, not only not proto indo european it is not even proto indo aryan there are many 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 indo aryan dialects all over india of which this was the only puru dialect so how can anyone ask me uh, uh, whether uh, vedic was the only language of the harappans or at least claim that i said such a thing i did not no 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 they are not saying that uh, vedic is the only language they are saying yeah. that this this proves that the aryan invasion is real because the jing- ling- linguistic genetic evidence suggests that vedic religion came from the indo aryan migration that's what the person is saying i don't think that is a topic of this thing then we have to go back to that genetic thing i, I have yeah. answered all the linguistic arguments can he give a linguistic argument no 
I'm not going to discuss genetics in this talk. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So now somebody has sir asked a question. Uh, it's like a comment based on the previous talk on the numbers. So they have written yeah. my question is regarding the number system in different languages. Dravidian is in second stage. Then they say European language have a base 22. In some languages, 80 is 4 into 20. Modern base 10 numbers are mostly because of the spread of the Hindu place value system post Fibonacci. I really don't know what exactly he's trying to say. Uh, now he means four. Even I did not understand. French. French, we know quatre wings, quatre uh, or however you pronounce it. Quatre via NGTS, that is four into 20 is the word for 80. So uh, the word for 70 is Sozan D. That is, uh, Sozan is 60 and D is 10. So you see, such innovations keep taking place, taking place in all languages. And uh, uh, that person has clearly not read my actual article on numbers where I have pointed out that the Basque language of uh, Spain was actually spoken over the whole of that Eastern Euro uh, Western Europe at that before the Indo-European languages went there. And they have influenced Celtic and so what uh, that French. person is trying to say is Tamil and Telugu are in second stage and not the third stage is what they're trying. No, to no, say. they are in the third stage. How? Can you explain? How? See, uh, I'll give for example of Telugu. Okay. You have numbers 1 to 10. Vakati, Rendu, Mudu, Nalagu, Ayudu, Aru, Yedu, Yenimidi, Tomidi, Padi. Then you have the numbers 20, 30, etc. Iravai, Muppai, Nalabhai, Yabhai, etc. Okay. Now, how do you get 11? Padi is 10 and Vakati is 1. So, is 11 Padi Vakati? No, it is Padakondu. Is 12 Padi Rendu? No, it is Pandrendu. But after 20, what do you see? Iravai Vakati, Iravai Rendu, Iravai Mudu, etc. For 22, 21, 22, 23. Muppai Vakati, Muppai Rendu, Muppai. It's just juxtaposition. Whereas 11 to 19 are not formed in that way. And I have it clearly mentioned in my talk that the distinction between stage 2 and 3 is that in stage 2, uh, 11 to 19 are formed exactly like 21 to 29, 31 to 39, etc. Whereas in stage 3, they are formed differently from the others. And I have just given the example of Telugu. It is the same in all other languages. All right. So in, in case that person has any further questions, they can, you know, you can reach out to Shrikanji directly on his blog spot. No, I think if I'm you read my, that article on numbers, this will be because I have pointed yeah. it out. And I just yeah. give the example of Telugu for this, uh, whether Dravidian languages are in stage two or three, it is very clear. Yeah. So, sir, just one last question because uh, um, we obviously have done this three-part series. Now, now here's the thing. We've gone through different phases, different different aspects of uh, of your linguistic case for the out of India theory. Now, once again, I have to say this that this 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 the whole premise and the whole crux and the whole division, and then I'll leave you with the last comments and we'll wrap it up, stems from every time somebody tries to have this discussion, it gets stuck at this one impasse that the Rigveda is 1500 BCE. Mm. Now, if the Rigveda and some, 
it's not like anybody has given a robust case for why the rigveda is 1500 bc there is yeah. literally no robust case and and if somebody has a robust case of why the rigveda is 1500 bc i would be happy to uh, you know take it but uh, from what i have understood that it is basically backdating the the wo kon tha wo banda max muller ka jisne bola ki 100 saal piche 200 saal piche jao aur iske liye uski date 1500 bc that's not a scientific explanation of anything in my opinion no and i have pointed out the... it is trying to find the mean date between the buddhist era from 600 bc and the indo european split era of around 3000 bc so between that somewhere they have found a point so so here's the thing now in such a scenario the entire AIT case literally is built on that date of 1500 BCE yeah. of the Rigveda. If that date is not real, the entire thing falls. Because yeah. if the date is behind that, then what do they do with the classical case of yeah. the Mitanni tablets, right? Or whatever. Yeah. The, the tablets in Mitanni. Because then yeah. they have to assume that. Secondly, how does one convince somebody about the chronology of the Rigveda? Uh I mean, how do we actually, you know, figure out these things is my question. See, now suppose someone insists 2 plus 2 is equal to 5. How will you explain to him that it is 2 plus 2 is equal to 4? You can physically take four objects, keep two here, two here, and then say, see, this is 2, this is 2, put them together and you get 4, not 5. You can point out like that. Even after that, if he does not uh, understand, then you are helpless, absolutely helpless. This is the same case. Okay, if you thought that it was 1500 BC, all right. I have given the Mitanni data and that evidence in my third book in 2008 is absolutely final in proving that the Rigveda goes back to 3000 BC or at least long before 2500 BC. Now, if you simply refuse to consider that data, it is impossible for me to uh, discuss this with you. It is like trying to prove to that person that 2 plus 2 is 4, even when he refuses to see you, when you physically show him in front of him, uh, do it with mm. four objects. So the data is important, not whether I can convince someone who doesn't want to be convinced. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I, I mean, the, this has been the thing that until and unless I always try to have this discussion with people and I tell them that your entire case is built on that date of 1500 BCE. I I yeah. hope you realize that. Every time I listen to these questions, like I'm not even like hardcore OIT. I mean, you know it. Everybody yeah. knows. I'm a skeptic in this question. I actually say I'm skeptical to everything. I gen uh, The reason I present your case the most over here is because everybody ignores you. They don't ignore the AIT, AMT people. They ignore you. So that's why I double down and I say, no, I'm going to show his point of view the most. I mean, but my question is that how the hell am I going to have a conversation with someone who just refuses to have? So one more question, sir. I'm sorry, somebody has popped up. They have, again, see, these. a lot of these questions come from people who are genuinely curious because they might be getting introduced to the subject for the first time in their life. Yeah. So they're saying if there was civilizational continuity after the collapse of the IVC, then why was there no script continuity between the IVC and post-IVC like the Rosetta Stone or something? Yeah. No one knows. We don't know. That is one of the big mysteries. See, that unsolved uh, mystery of the Indus uh, alphabet is still an unsolved mystery. No one has been able to solve it. So I cannot answer that and uh, give you a satisfactory explanation. It is an unsolved mystery, full stop. But 
what data we have discussed is what you should instead of seeing the data which has been put to your refusion and then you ask questions about unsolved mysteries and expect me to to answer them by looking in my crystal ball i cannot do it it is i have given the data answer the data prove it is false and then we will discuss all this then we will discuss all these hypothetical questions of why this did not happen or why this happened it happened or it did not happen that is the fact which is in front of us we have to discuss okay, the data fair. not all these uh, hypothetical situations and uh, non situations okay fair enough fair enough so guys i think we'll wrap today's discussion up now the aim of this series was that you know we present a particular point of view shrikant sir has worked years and years he has studied tons of material and the thing which shrikant ji's arguments are that you know he breaks multiple hearts you know, he breaks the heart of the jingoistic chauvinistic hindu crowd which thinks everybody uh, you know <laughs> everything and everyone comes from india sanskrit is the be all and end all of everything and at the same time shrikant ji's arguments you know also break the heart of uh, people who believe in the aryan migration and aryan invasion i have always maintained one thing if you have a problem with shrikant talagiri's arguments you read the rigveda because look when i try to the, uh, shrikant sir knows this by the way my whole journey on reading his material was to prove him wrong that's how it started i i i was a guy who believed hardcore in ait amt and i was like i will prove shrikant talagiri wrong i read his books then i was like i'll prove and i'll find flaws in his work i read the rigveda then i was like not good enough i'll read three english translations of the rigveda then i even read the arya samaj translation of the rigveda by the way i got a heart attack when i read the arya samaj translation of the rigveda i was like ye kya pad liya maine ye to kuch sense hi nahi ban rahi hai ye rigveda kaun sa hai but still and after that i did realize that look his chronology is is based on the verses that are actually mentioned in the rigveda we can't challenge it but then if you have real questions for shrikant talagiri he's always open to debate just you know by using ad hominem attacks like calling him a blank bank clerk i mean what are you trying to prove is my question so bank clerks are not allowed to be intelligent bank clerks are not allowed to give you an answer my question to each and every person is have you read the rigveda like shrikant talagiri has read the rigveda is my question to all of you try and read the rigveda i i say this with full responsibility badi boring book hai when i used to read it i was like are bap re kaise khatam karunga i did i somehow managed to but it's tough to read that book and then you know you'll come in oh, what about about genetics yeah what about genetics look buddhism went from india can somebody explain the gene flow from india it doesn't match meme flows and gene flows do not have to match so this this argument that because you have a certain entry around that date from the steps into india nobody denies the entry of people and the entry of certain r1a1 a whatever that is into india nobody denies that shrikant talagiri has never denied that in fact shrikant talagiri has gone to the extent as said that genetics cannot even prove oit let alone ait he has always maintained that genetics ka karna kya hai usse kuch prove hi nahi hota hai yes people went from point a to point b yeah we know that they must have gone from india outside too that doesn't prove anything so my point is that you can disagree with shrikant talagiri that's not the issue shrikant sir has always been more than magnanimous in our email exchanges where we have had vehement disagreements but the point is koi to logic hona chahiye 
if you're going to just merely dismiss his work by just calling him names, I'm sorry. I don't accept that. Take him seriously. Read his work. Read the Rigveda. Find flaws in his work. Many people should do that. The problem is nobody wants to do that. They just want to bracket him as a chauvinistic Hindu. Lo and behold, till you find your view. <laughs> And his views on spirituality, it will break a lot of your hearts. But the point is, this is not fair, is what I'm trying to say. This is not fair on the man. You check his work, you debate it. So I'll leave you guys with that. My aim through these series, and you know, I'm very grateful to Shrikanji that when I requested him, sir, you have presentations, and he happily agreed to do it. Why? Because I wanted to create a pantheon of material which will uh, assuming YouTube does not shut me down, which will always have the arguments of Srikanth Telagiri on the internet every time a person has to go and refer, uh, refer to it. Now, you know, whether people agree with or not, that I don't see. So I will leave at that uh, you know, everyone on that note and Srikanth sir, as always, I have always learnt a lot from you. So once again thanks a lot for coming and giving your uh, presentation on this channel. Yeah, I have a few words to say which has no connection with this. And I don't know whether I should be saying these things, but um, you know, um, this uh, today, 8th September, is the most inauspicious day of the year for me because this is the day on which my mother expired nine years ago. And so when I didn't know that this third part would come today, so I was thinking of telling you two, three days ago to shift the date. But then I thought, let me at least take this chance of expressing my gratitude to my parents on this occasion that whatever I am, is because of the uh, uh, sanskar or whatever they have inculcated in me. Because, you know, both my parents were absolutely, you know, they, they adhered to the principles of what I consider true Hindutva, that uh, the principles of truth, justice, and humanitarianism. And not only that, see, I have, you know, you said just now, people read the Rigveda and you will see, but people have been reading the Rigveda for thousands of years. but. Uh, from that, the facts that I have taken out and proved, prove those facts and the data and those conclusions wrong. Just reading the Rig Veda will not uh, show anything to them. So that has to be done. And I know that what I have done, even if it sounds arrogant, I know that I always refer to my case as irrefutable, which even Conrad has said, you sound very uh, arrogant when you say that. But it's not arrogant. <laughs> I know my uh, minus points and I know my plus points. And this is my biggest plus point that my case is irrefutable. And why I feel uh, that uh, I did this because uh, I managed to do it because I have got certain qualities from my parents. Like my father was very systematic in his work in the office, in the pers in his personal life, etc. I am absolutely harem scaram and uh, uh, unsystematic in my personal life. But in this studies, I was uh, helped because I got this, uh, you know, systematic um, attitude from my father. And my mother was so this thing that any matter that she looked at, like, you know, Arjuna could only see the eye of the bird. She used to go right to the central point and say, why is this like this or why is that like that? She used to ignore all the dross and the superfluous aspects. And I think that is the second aspect which has helped me to uh, solve this whole thing. So I just wanted to take this chance to express my uh, this. 
to my parents no sir we we are grateful that your parents trained you the way you are because uh, that's how we got the best out of you so so, so kudos to your parents for uh, giving you all the good uh, uh, good training because fayda to the bharat ka hua end mein aapne kitabe likhi aur mere jaise logon ko aapki kitabe padhne ko padhne ko mila so we are all grateful to you okay guys we will uh, end today's discussion once again each and every detail that has been discussed over here is going to be also be uploaded by shrikant sir on his own blog spot what i'm going to do is whether you watch part 1 part 2 or part 3 each and everything is going to be in the description of the podcast you can go and click the link of shrikant sir's uh, blog spot then you can go on his blog spot and you can access all the material over there see a lot of times people prefer to have a you know a, a kind of a digital copy also a lot of these blogs that he talks about like the blog on the number system or the blog on the elephant and a lot of these things i have shared these details a lot of times in the descriptions of the podcast which we consider so you can always go and check the descriptions i leave all these links over there so i'll end today's discussion on yeah, that uh, note once, once i will again. be putting up this uh, powerpoint also in uh, word pdf form tomorrow on my blog spot that is just all right so great great so yeah so everybody can go and check them out all right guys we'll end today's discussion uh, over here as always i thank each and every one of you for the support of the podcast please continue to watch these discussions these are very important discussions if you have not subscribed to the channel please do it like the video leave a comment support the podcast either by becoming a member on youtube or becoming a subscriber on patreon or by buying the charbak podcast merch or sending your donations through upi your support keeps making me going all the time i will see you guys next time until then namaste take care goodbye